from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Friends, our first scripture reading today comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 45, verses 1 through 15. Feel free to follow along on page 40 in the Old Testament in your pew Bibles. Or listen now for God's word to you and to me. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. So dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall settle in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, as well as your flocks, your herds and all that you have. I will provide for you there, since there are five more years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. And now your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my own mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father how greatly I am honored in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, while Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament lesson this morning comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 10 through 28. It's another long section of text, so I invite us all to take a deep breath and hear again God's word. Then Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. 
It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles. Then the disciples approached and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? Jesus answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if one blind person guides another, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain this parable to us. Then Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and goes out into the sewer, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles? For out of the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord God, let these old and sometimes hard and often confusing words speak to us in new ways today so that we might leave this place better able to love and serve in your name. Amen. The lectionary this week moves us into Matthew's gospel. We'll be here for a few weeks. And it concludes the journey we've been on this summer through the Genesis narratives. These are not easy texts for modern ears, especially when we read two long, complicated ones back to back. But this moment in Genesis, when Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers, brothers who sold him, and let their father think he was dead is just another installment in a complicated tale of family and famine and power and politics and regret and in the end, reconciliation. But there's a very important theological confession right in the middle of this text Anne Henley just read, and we need to hear it today. That is that God is at work to redeem the world despite even the worst of human behavior. Amen? Now that doesn't give us license, but it should give us hope. And Matthew today gives us a lesson from Jesus and an encounter with the woman whose hope emboldened her to worship and to speak up, to plead for her daughter's healing. 
This section of Matthew's Gospel gives us two scenes back to back. In the first one, Jesus is being challenged by some scribes and some Pharisees. These are two groups who studied the Old Testament law and made it their work to enforce obedience to the Old Testament law. And here they have a grievance with Jesus about a ritual practice of hand washing. Now, to be clear, this isn't actually about germs or hygiene. It is good to wash our hands before meals. Anyone who knows me knows how much I personally love Purell. What they're talking about in the text that comes just before the one we just read is a ritual that was symbolic. It was a hand cleansing to make sure that no one touched anything that was unclean or unpure according to the law, like certain animals or prohibited foods or even sick people. Jesus and his disciples have not been doing this in the way the scribes and the Pharisees think they should, so they're trying to get them to admit that they've been wrong and that they've been disobeying God's law. Well, Jesus, as you heard, is having none of that. He schools the scribes and the Pharisees on what it is that really makes a person clean. It's not unclean food that defiles, he tells them. It isn't what we've eaten or what our hands have touched. Jesus says to the crowd, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and goes out into the sewer, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart? And that is what defiles. In other words, we show what is in our hearts with our words, our silences, and our actions. Now, this is a really important lesson for Jesus' disciples because they need guidance about how to interpret the Old Testament law now that Jesus has come to fulfill it. They need to be able to model with their words and actions so that they won't be the blind leading the blind and fall into a pit. They need to know the difference between empty ritual and actions that show that God rules our hearts. And they need to get ready for God's mission in the world. And it's a mission that will bring love and mercy not just to a chosen few, not just the ones who are practicing the rituals and traditions, not just the people who live in the right places or come from the right family line, but to all. The lesson comes to life in the next scene. Jesus and his disciples have traveled to Tyre and Sidon. These are cities where Gentiles lived, so not the children of Israel. Jesus arrives in this place, and the text says, just then. So we can envision that he's coming in, and in that moment, a local woman, a Canaanite woman, comes at him, and she's shouting. She's screaming. The word could actually be translated shrieking, but I won't shriek it. Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. You get a sense of the drama with Jesus and his disciples coming in and being confronted. Jesus is outside his own territory. He's just had a disagreement with the powers that be about how Israel's supposed to honor traditions. He's told them that their rituals are empty and that they need to worry less about their hands and more about the purity of their hearts. And then he walks into this confrontation. Jesus, a man and a Jew, is approached by a woman, a Gentile, 
And what's more, a Canaanite, a woman from Israel's old foe, Canaan. And to make matters more uncomfortable, she's desperate for help, shrieking for mercy for her daughter. She's the total opposite of the Pharisees and the scribes. She's not worried about ritual or tradition. She's not worried about the bad blood between Israel and Canaan or Jews and Gentiles. She doesn't want to challenge Jesus and his disciples. She just falls on her knees before him. She alone in this scene recognizes his power and calls him Lord, son of David, and begs for mercy. Scripture reverberates with echoes of God's mercy, and it takes different forms. Mercy comes as forgiveness, as justice, as healing, as salvation, and often as steadfast love. This woman begs for mercy for her daughter who needs healing, and yet in this plea comes a rich bundle of notions about who God is and what God does. When we seek mercy, we're confessing our need for forgiveness, and we're also taking comfort in the promise of God's grace. That's what this foreign woman asks for. And if what comes out of our mouths demonstrates what's in our hearts, she really believes that Jesus is a merciful Lord. That's what makes what comes next so jarring to us, because Jesus doesn't answer her. Worse, his disciples come along and tell Jesus to send her away, to get rid of her. Maybe they're embarrassed, maybe they're annoyed. She is shrieking, after all, and her needs were not on their itinerary. She isn't one of them. Send her away. She keeps shouting at us, they say. Now we, we expect Jesus to turn and reprimand his disciples. They're always slow to understand his purposes, and they're always trying to shield him from people who come up and want his time and attention, the very people we see him heal over and over again. But Jesus doesn't turn and reprimand the disciples, and this little conversation that comes next has made this text hard for readers and scholars forever. Jesus turns and says to his disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. He's affirming that his mission is to save Israel, but it sure sounds like he's keeping this desperate woman outside the bounds of mercy. She comes back in hope in desperation, in faith, she persists. She kneels before him, a posture of worship, and says, Lord, help me. Again, Jesus' answer sounds shocking and harsh. He says, it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. That sure doesn't sound like radical hospitality, but the woman is still undeterred. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. From our context, we wrestle with the implications of this. Is Jesus being dismissive of a person in need? Is this woman being kept in a marginalized place even while she begs for help? without sugarcoating the impact of this exchange. Tom Long writes this. 
Despite their blunt tone, Jesus' words are in sharp and stark terms an expression of his true identity. By the use of his metaphor of the children and the dogs, he's graphically reaffirming what he said to the disciples. He is Israel's Messiah, and he has been sent to the lost sheep of Israel. But with her reply, the Canaanite woman doesn't dispute that. She doesn't challenge that Jesus is the savior of Israel. What is bold and radical about her persistence is that she recognizes in all humility that Jesus is her savior too. Jesus, the faithful Messiah of Israel, has the power to save the whole world. With her reply, whatever boundaries or limits excluded her are shattered. She's no longer in an inferior status, no longer just a Gentile or an outsider, no longer just an enemy or an annoyance. Woman, Jesus says, great is your faith, and her daughter is healed. Great is the faith of one who sought not to be right, but to be healed. Great is the faith of one who stood her ground to claim Christ's mercy. Great is the faith of one who would not be put into a place of inferiority. Great is the faith of one whose words poured from a pure heart. In the last week, we have heard so many words. We've seen so many jarring and angry images that unfortunately are not new in our world. We've seen more innocent people killed in terror attacks, and we continue to feel the impact of the violence and hate that descended on Charlottesville just a week ago. This week, we heard for ourselves the truth of Jesus' lesson to his disciples and those scribes and Pharisees. What comes out of mouths defiles. When the heart holds evil, what comes out in actions or words or silence defiles the whole body. We've seen leaders of neo-Nazi and white supremacist and KKK groups look directly into news cameras and into the faces of their fellow human beings and pledge to put people of color and non-Christians in their place, which they wrongly believe is a place of inferiority. And they tried to do just that. Last Saturday, Reverend Tracy Blackman, who's a female African-American pastor from Birmingham, who now serves a congregation in St. Louis, led others in a time of worship and prayer at St. Paul's Memorial Episcopal Church in Charlottesville. As that faith community sat inside, worshiping and praying, another group gathered outside, armed and wielding torches. Reverend Blackman, and the others were forced to stay inside for their own safety. Down the road, 40 members of the Reformed Jewish Beth Israel Synagogue participated in Shabbat services. They had heard threats that their building would be burned, so they'd already removed their Torah scrolls and their important symbols. But they gathered on Shabbat, even as armed neo-Nazis gathered outside, some shouting anti-Semitic chants. Members of that synagogue left by the back door to avoid being harmed. These words and actions defiled the world we all share. The people who rallied in hate and menaced Charlottesville churches 
wrongly think they're entitled to more than those of other races or faiths. They threatened and intimidated in the hopes that they could create fear and separate groups of people, that they could replace openness with exclusion. Tony said it here last week, and it bears repeating until our world is changed. White supremacy, hate, racism, and bigotry are alive and pervasive, and they are antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ, our resurrected Lord. Now, there are also scenes of hope and hospitality in the midst of hate last weekend, and we've learned about them this week. There were people who stood up and spoke out. Alan Zimmerman of Temple Beth Israel wrote about a Navy veteran, not a member of the congregation, but a man who came and stood guard at the synagogue because he thought it was the right thing to do. He told the story of an elderly Roman Catholic woman who also came to the synagogue to show her support with her presence, weeping because of the hate aimed at her Jewish neighbors. Maybe some of you saw photographs and videos of clergy of different races and genders and faith linked arm in arm as a visible show of solidarity, a witness to the wideness of Christ's mercy and love. In this hard week, we've seen just how much hate continues to abide in human hearts. And the bold humility of that Canaanite woman in that context calls us out. She persisted in her faith. She clung to a hope that was more powerful than her fear. And in spite of everything that made her different from the disciples and the so-called faithful groups, she was the one who saw the true wideness of Christ's mercy, and she was the one who stood up and spoke out. So friends, what do our words and actions and silences say about what is in our hearts? I was able to spend some beautiful time last week with a group of older adults from this church, and they shared with me some of their experiences of standing up to hate, even in the life of this congregation. Sometimes it was bigotry that threatened to divide this community from the inside, and they had to speak hard truths to one another to ensure that this church, First Presbyterian of Atlanta, would be a place of radical hospitality, an inclusive place that didn't separate people by difference. At other times, this congregation has stood as a body against hate. During the Civil Rights Movement, when the temple was bombed, when our neighbors and friends were targeted and excluded from their place of worship, some people in this room and others who are watching or listening out in the world might know firsthand what it feels like to face hate, to be defined by differences and to be kept on the outside. People in this room have been compelled to stand up and to speak out, and maybe others have not had those same experiences. We may feel completely committed to the value of radical hospitality, maybe completely horrified by the racism and hate that have been on display this week and for far too long in this country, and yet we haven't spoken out against it, maybe because it wasn't interrupting our own lives, Maybe because we haven't been excluded from our church or home or workplace. Maybe we've kept quiet because we didn't really know what to say 
and we didn't want to offend anyone. Maybe we see a little of ourselves in the disciples in this story. It had to have been awkward for them. They're in a new place with this woman who wasn't in their circle, shrieking at them and demanding help. They must have felt uncomfortable. And surely the easiest thing was not to listen to the needs of the Canaanite woman, but to send her away and to restore as quickly as possible the order of polite company. That's easier now, too, to quiet down the interrupters and the disruptors, to wait politely for the news cycle to turn over until what we think of as normal life returns. But friends, we are not called to a polite faith. We are called to an honest one. And if we're honest, we will see just how much we are actually like that Canaanite woman we need mercy, forgiveness, healing, and steadfast love, just as she did. We're not insiders, entitled to blessed lives. We're in no position to condescend or try to save our fellow human beings. Just like that persistent woman, we have received Christ's mercy as a gift, freely given. And as recipients, the gospel compels us to respond in gratitude standing up for radical hospitality, just as Jesus Christ did. Whether we know for ourselves what the face of hate looks like, whether it's tried to keep us on the outs, the gospel compels each of us to ask, who is being excluded? Who is being targeted and hated? Whose voice is crying out for mercy? And who is being silenced? or dismissed. The gospel compels us as people of the good news to condemn hate groups and marchers who carry weapons and torches and threaten communities. But it also requires so much more. It's actually pretty easy for us to speak out against blatant displays of hate and carrying fire and senseless loss of life. It's much harder for us to speak up when someone makes a biased joke. It's much harder to speak out when we hear others reinforcing stereotypes based on people's differences. It's harder to look into our hearts and name our own biases and assumptions. It's harder to make the effort required to know people whose backgrounds are not like ours and to ask them if we can learn from them. It's harder to identify what makes us uncomfortable and harder still to move toward those things. It's harder to show up when we're afraid we'll be judged. And it is much, much harder to commit to the long-term work of building relationships, to not settling for a return to normal after the news cycle has passed, but changing what we will accept as normal. What comes out of our mouths can defile or it can witness to a love that reaches beyond human difference and bring mercy to a broken world. This table is a good place to start. Here we can be honest about what's in our hearts, about what we've said that we shouldn't, and about the times we kept silent when we should have spoken up. 
The sacrament we celebrate is called Holy Communion because here we're a community with each other and with God. The table breaks down any barriers between human beings and we come here as equals, each confessing our failures and knowing how much we need Christ's mercy. Here we give thanks for the welcome we receive only because of what Christ has done for us. Here, we join a glorious feast that leaves no room for false ideologies that elevate some people over others, and we proclaim that the world will know the wideness of God's mercy. May it be so for the sake of all God's children. Amen. <laughs>